naturally the conversation goes from, hey, what do we think you'll need for three years? And then let's go find a solution for your three year need. It's, hey, w- what do you think you need in the next 12 months? And then let's go find a solution that provides you the flexibility to either scale up or scale down. Should you, you know, land a big contract or decide to maybe offshore a business unit that you previously thought would be onshore? That was Austin Trees, Senior Vice President at JLL and industry expert on office space and everything that goes along with it. Leasing office space as a tech startup or even a mature company is a complicated and stressful process. But senior expert resources like Austin can make it all so, so much easier. I'm very excited about today's episode because when I've asked my friends and other founders who are operating tech companies about the questions they would like to ask an expert like this, they sent me a long list of questions. There's a lot of curiosity around best practices and what to watch out for when leasing office space. I'm so excited to get into this episode and share all of the knowledge that Austin shared with me with everyone else. Welcome to this week's episode of Capital Geek. Austin Trees, good morning. Welcome to the show. Good morning. Thanks for having me. How are you? I'm doing really well, my friend. It's Friday and the sun's out and the birds are chirping, so it's a beautiful day to be in America. Yeah, a nice, beautiful 98 degrees today, hopefully. You know, not triple digits. Yeah, it's like it. It's like a cold spell. <laughs> exactly. Well, uh, as usual, we're, we're talking here in Austin, Texas uh, from my home office, and I'm really excited about today's show because as I went out to uh, the group of CEOs that I worked with as an investor and advisor and asked them what they would like to know if they had uh, some private time with a, a local corporate real estate expert, they came back with a very long, robust list of questions. So it must be a very hot topic for these folks. And uh, I'm excited to talk about it. Maybe before we get into it, you could just give us an introduction to yourself and, and just sort of what you do. Sure. Yeah. The short version is, um, you know, I am a senior vice president at a big giant firm called Jones Lang LaSalle. And what we do is we provide real estate services. And so I specialize in what's called tenant representation. So I run around with firms big and small, you know, as big as, you know, Roku's and the Cisco's of the world and, you know, as small as the sort of stealth startup companies and help them find whatever solution it might be whether it's office space, maybe it's an R&D facility, maybe it's bulk warehouse, et cetera. So I specialize in the Austin area, but I also um, do deals all around the world for mostly companies that are either headquartered in Austin or Texas or have a relationship with otherwise. So That's awesome. And as I spoke to the people that I worked with uh, in my exec group about which real estate expert to talk to, your name came up over and over. And what was interesting to me is I've always thought about corporate real estate as being transactional. But you actually build relationships with these CEOs and and operating teams. And those relationships persist over time as the company grows and they move. Is that right? Yeah, 100%. I mean, I think you'll find different philosophies with different, quote unquote, real estate professionals. You know, at the end of the day, there is a conflict of interest in what we do. You know, the bigger, longer term deal that a tenant does, the larger, you know, the fee is that is paid by the landlord. And so, you know, some people are tempted to kind of clip a fee and do an aggressive deal that maybe isn't in the best interest of users. And, uh, you know, users are really smart and they can see through that. And so what we like to do at JLL is really we like to focus on the relationship because we know if we do what's right by the client, then the revenue will come eventually. And so it might not be the first deal, the second deal, the third deal, but 
if you build a strong enough relationship, you know, and as tenants grow, the deals will naturally get bigger and they're going to bring you in to do, you know, some more real estate transactions. Maybe it's not on their HQ, but it's for ancillary offices or ancillary needs. And the only way that happens is if you build trust. And so eventually we like to be seen as a partner, not necessarily a service provider. So, you know, it strikes me that the way you operate is somewhat similar to how I operate as an advisor and investor. And that oftentimes I'll invest in young founders in their first startup. And as I do it, I'm obviously interested in that first startup, but I can see that their second and third startup are going to be where the real money opportunity is going to be. And getting in there early, building trust and building that partnership type relationship is super important. I'm going to get into some of the questions that were given to us because there's a long list and I think some of these will spawn pretty good discussions. One of the things that was asked by five or six different CEOs that I queried was how should they think about estimating office space in terms of size? You know, these companies are young, they're growing rapidly, but that growth is dependent upon revenue growth, which is sometimes hard to find, so it can be hard to predict. And what advice do you give people that are maybe looking at their first space and they're trying to think through the next three to five years? Sure. Yeah, so this this question was a lot easier to answer pre-COVID. And before we had this rapid progression of sort of what the workplace looks like going forward and a sort of digital remote first world. And so, you know, pre-COVID, it was easy rule of thumb for a tech company that sort of has a mix of engineering and sales and a skew towards being more efficient with their costs. It's really about one per 200. And when I say one per 200, it's one employee per 200 square feet of space. So that's a good place to start. And given my experience with startups, you know, asking them to, to basically provide me with a three-year headcount, uh, I quit asking that question because it's just too difficult to do. And so um, naturally, the conversation goes from, hey, what do we think you'll need for three years? And then let's go find a solution for your three-year need. It's hey, what do you think you need in the next 12 months? And then let's go find a solution that provides you the flexibility to either scale up or scale down should you you know, land a big contract or you know, decide to maybe offshore a business unit that you previously thought would be onshore. So I, I still think given, you know, despite hybrid work, I would still plan right around that one per 200 square foot per person metric, but people are designing their space a little bit different. And then, you know, once again, I, I would focus on the flexibility of the solution, not necessarily trying to find the exact amount of perfect space for your group. That, that's really good advice. What form does that flexibility usually come in? I mean, what does that look like when you see it? So there are really three types, just to put it simply, there are three product types that most people choose from it when it is specific to office space. It's, you know, you're either going to do something in co-working, which is max flexibility. You're going to sublease a space, which is a little more flexibility, mostly because they typically are shorter term. You can move in a little bit quicker. They might have furniture and some other infrastructure already in place. And the third one is what we call a direct deal. So obviously with the sublease, you've got sort of a, a third party that's a sub landlord that's an existing tenant and a direct deal is just directly with the landlord. Pros and cons to each um, and depending on sort of the maturity of the business, the growth rate of the business, and honestly, just sort of the risk appetite of the business, each one of those three makes sense. You know, I would say if you are a stealth or a seed stage company and it's basically you and two or three other founders slash core executives, you know, co-working makes a lot of sense. A lot of people don't like WeWork and they're justifiable in that sort of dislike just because it is really cramped. You know, not all the tenants in there can maybe match the professionalism that you would like to be sort of exuded in your workplace. But at the end of the day, finding a month to month or a six month contract or a 12 month lease or sublease is exceedingly rare, even despite sort of the headwinds that we're seeing in the market, which we can speak to later. 
And then, you know, I think subleases are, you know, right around, you know, maybe you've got a core group of customers, you need to sort of ramp up some sales teams or an engineering team, et cetera. But you can think at least 12 to 18 months ahead, as opposed to thinking, you know, three to six months ahead. You know, then I think a sublease makes a lot of sense. It's easier said than done, but that is seemingly the lily pad to then getting into like a, you know, a more traditional direct lease, which is, you know, even for well-established you know, Series B, Series C companies, they're they're still looking for max flexibility because even despite their size, just the rate in which they're growing or the uncertainty around their business, it still doesn't quite warrant a, you know, a, a three or five year agreement. So, so it sounds like you're saying if it's a year or less, WeWork might be an option, especially if you don't have any idea how big you're going to be in six to 12 months. Yeah. And, and you can still go look for a short-term sublease because maybe it's just so untenable for you to be in a co-working space. It's just super dense. And there are other providers that provide, I'll call it, um, it's just a less intense version of co-working. Um, so, it, you know, I think at the end of the day, you just have to do your due diligence. You have to put in the work. The process is not short, unfortunately. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's, it's a three-month process to really do things correctly. Um, if you don't have three months and that's as short as you can possibly go, then 100%, it's like, look, go find co-working, find a place that you can touch down at. And then we can start, uh, you know, to focus on maybe a more permanent solution thereafter. You know, the portfolio companies I worked with that really like their co-working spaces are organizations that use those spaces no more than about five to eight business days a month. You know, they're usually empty. Occasionally they need to get together in person. And so they put up with the downsides of co-working in order to have the flexibility in the cost basis of it of being empty most of the time. But once there have people that go there every day, even if it's only a couple of people, I find the co-working space is hard to deal with. Yeah, no, I, I would agree. And frankly, I think the biggest complaint outside of just sort of some logistical thorns that come with being in a co-working space is that a lot of groups feel like they can't build their own culture within a WeWork or a co-working organization, right? You know, it's hard to put your finger on, you know, culture is super important. It's not easy to define and companies, you know, it takes months, years to actually develop the kind of culture they want. But for whatever reason, a lot of companies just feel like I got to get out of WeWork because I've, I've got to build my own culture. And maybe it's just because you're in a more isolated private space as opposed to sort of being in this, you know, melting pot. So, you know, culture is a big cornerstone and you're either an office centric culture or you're, you know, a remote first culture. Obviously, there's a spectrum there. But to your point, the more remote first folks that really only use the WeWorks and the co-workings for touchdown space or for group meetings, that cultural risk isn't nearly as forefront as maybe, a, you know, a group that wants to have everybody in the office every single day. Do you think it varies based on age group? 20-somethings, millennials, Gen Xers, Gen Zers, is one specific group more open to that co-working shared space concept? Because I think for me, you know, being a guy who's almost 50 years old, when I walk in there, it feels like I'm, you know, hanging out with a bunch of kids for the most part. And it's it's an environment I have a hard time understanding, let alone functioning in. Yeah, 100%. We have surveyed quite a few clients on quite a few companies to just figure out sort of you know, who wants to be remote, who doesn't. And I think to my point, there's definitely a correlation between the viability of co-working and, you know, the viability of a more isolated space. The correlation is, is that young people want to be in the office. And I think a lot of it is because that's where they sort of get their social outlet, especially, 
if they're new to a city, they're particularly young, a new company, right? They're trying to make friends. Their social life, speaking from experience, is forefront and definitely takes a front seat. Whereas, you know, for most young people, the career, at least initially, is more of a backseat item, right? And so, you know, the young people want to be in the office. And frankly, even the ones that are career centric, they want to be in the office because they're at least smart enough to know that they don't know everything. And so they want to learn from the people that actually do know what they're doing. And it's just more practical to sort of be in the same room as somebody. I don't care what you say. It's more practical to be in the same room or at least the same building so that when these little tiny questions come up, they can go to that person in person, ask the question and get a quick answer. Whereas when you're remote, sure, you can pick up the phone. I mean, sure, you can send them a Teams message. You can set up a, a Zoom call or whatever. But if you're doing that all day, every day, it's a little annoying and it's clunky and it's not as functional. And so, you know, we're seeing that people that need to be trained, they need to be in a high energy setting, i.e. sales, or they need to be in a collaborative setting, i.e. marketing or product development role. They want to be in person. And, you know, to your point, their standards for in-person offices are a little bit lower than, say, people that are, you know, the middle of their career, right? It's, you know, at some point you're like, look, I'll go in the office, but I need my own space. I need an office. I I'm not going to be doing this whole bullpen thing where, you know, I'm elbow to elbow with everybody and it's loud and it's noisy and it's, you know, it feels like a club. You know, another thing that several people asked about, and I'm trying to coalesce this into a, a small list of questions, but... What advice do you have for people that are trying to choose what part of town to get their office space in? You know, their staff is spread all over the metro area. Their customers are probably, you know, geographically dispersed around the world. How do they zero in on the right part of town to start looking at? So I've got a client, she's a killer female CEO, and, and she put it really well and really succinctly. She goes, when it comes to an office, I'm trying to build magnets, not mandates. And so she is trying to go out and find an office space that will be a magnet for her people. And she doesn't want to necessarily have to force people to come back. And so really another way to put it is like, there's a flight to quality going on right now. You know, maybe not everybody can afford class A space. I understand that. But I think where you're located, the amenity base around it, I think that is more important than people's commutes, right? Because I think the commute concern can be mitigated with the fact that most people aren't making their employees come back every single day, right? And so the commute isn't as painful if it's not happening every day. And so instead, you want to focus on being in a part of town that has some interest, has some character, you know, is near restaurants and walkable. Like we all know what that part of town is and what that part of town feels like. And that's sort of a way that you can naturally get people to come back. Potentially they come back just because they want to be back more often. They want private space and just being able to walk to lunch is nice. But also for the people that really don't want to come back for the little in-person work that they might do, hey, they might do it at the office at 3 p.m. on a Friday. And then it's like, hey, let's go grab a beer after we download on what we did this week and just kind of like have a little bit of a cultural lift that I think actually I'm willing to say that I know is really, really difficult to replicate remotely. So as far as a part of town is concerned, I would, you know, be super focused on, you know, maybe downtown is just too insane for you. And I understand it, but some kind of urban core ish setting that, you know, is fairly central and is approximate to interesting things to do and places to run errands and all that good stuff. Now, you mentioned that not everyone can afford class A space. 
What are the differences between class A, B, and C space from a corporate real estate perspective? The labels are a little misleading. And frankly, there isn't really set characteristics for each of those classes, if you will. There are buildings out there that are, they call themselves class A. They're not class A buildings. I think everybody can kind of look at a building, understand a building, where it's located, when it was built, the amenities associated with it, and determine if it sort of is a class A building. Maybe a better way to put it is class A and then value office right? There are buildings that are new. They've got killer amenities. They're in a perfect part of town. They've got structured parking and they've got institutional landlords. Like that's a class A building that's super corporate. I mean, the aesthetic could still be interesting. So not necessarily a corporate feeling, but it's a very institutional asset. Yeah. But if you're a wealth management company or in finance or, you know, or a legal firm, you probably want that kind of space, right? Is that the way I'm understanding it? I'll reposition it like this. There's trophy real estate. There's class A real estate, and then there's value office. That's what I'll call it. So the trophy stuff, that's like your law firms, your high-end investment banks. That's where Facebook or Google is going to go at least. Like that is primo space. Landlords are looking for 12 to 15 year agreements. You're spending $150, $200 a foot to build out the space. You probably have to take a full floor or more and so that that's sort of like the trophy brand new new construction stuff. And then there is nice buildings in nice areas that are well run, that have good amenities, that are institutionally owned, like that's the class A. And then the value offices, you know, maybe regional ownership, they don't have the fancy gym, or maybe it's surface parked. I think all three of those make sense for all three different kinds of companies, right? And what your budget is and what your balance sheet is like, et cetera. But it's an old adage and it's it's cheesy, but it's right now it's all about location, location, location. It's just find something that works for you from a pricing standpoint in or near a part of town that everybody is willing to drive to is the simplest way I can put it. When you go to negotiate your lease for this space, is that something that people typically do just working with you or do they invite their, their general counsel or how complicated does that get? So I think initially it's it, you're really just negotiating a term sheet, and I think that can be accomplished with you know obviously a representative of the company and then a broker. Obviously, I'm a broker. I'm biased. I think it's important to include us in the conversation. Frankly, just because the information set is so fractured, right? I mean, you're you're negotiating in a vacuum unless you can somehow find other pertinent real estate data points that then give you the context about what the building's actually worth or what your deal is actually worth them. And so we're running around trading comps all the time and calling on brokers to get quoted rates and what their last deal is at, et cetera. So it's really not that complicated at the end of the day. I mean, it's not rocket science. I think it's it's pretty easy to understand and explain what levers can be pulled. A piece of advice is, is that, and this is obvious, at the end of the day, the landlord wants to maintain the valuation of their building and the way that they're, or improve it. Obviously, the way most buildings are evaluated, and I'm going to simplify this, is based off of their their baseline headline rent. So we'll just say, just for examples, like $30 net. They're willing to buy that rate. Hold on. $30 net base rent. What does that mean? I know you're going to stop me. So um, <laughs> there are two components of rent. It, there's base rent. And then there's operating expenses. Operating expenses are just pass-throughs, right? It's the cost for the landlord to run the building. And so you pay your pro rata share as a tenant. And so each year they have an estimate. They basically say, this is what it's going to cost to run the building. We're passing your portion through to you 
at the end of the year, we'll reconcile it. And if we're over or under, which they're usually pretty good about estimating, we'll square up at the end of the year. So that's the operating expense component. The base rent is basically, and the reason I said net was like, that's sort of their net income before debt, right? So the base rent is what they're, that's their profit for the most part, at least their gross profit. And so that is for the most part, when, when I'm an investor, I want to see what they're paying in base rent now. I don't really care what they paid 12 months ago or 24 months ago. And, and landlords know that. And so what they're willing to do in order to get that base rent is they will buy it. What I mean by buy it is like they will give you a bunch of upfront incentives in order to get their base rent that then affects the valuation of their building. Incentives like build out money or what? Build out money, free rent options, whether it's an expansion option or a determination option. But the, the, the big two economic ones are, you know, the free rent, and the the build out money, so a tenant improvement allowance. And so, you know, when you're going into these negotiations, just understanding the motivations of the landlord, i.e., I want my base rent to be as high as possible, you basically give on that, and instead you go after all the upfront incentives that you can possibly get, which usually aligns with, especially for startup firms where cash is king, it's kind of like, look, if we don't have to pay rent for six, nine months, and you're going to cover the minimal construction costs that we have, like, that's great, because my company's going to look wildly different in the next nine months. And so me paying, you know, 10%, 15% higher base rate than I think I could probably negotiate in nine months, that's a good trade. You know, I'll, I'll take no, I'll take no CapEx and free rent for nine months and pay whatever rate you want, Mr. Landlord. And I think if you go into it with that mindset, you're going to have a really efficient and fair negotiation. When companies come in and they really want to go after that baseline rent, where they're just saying like, look, I want my monthly cost to be as low as possible. I, I don't really care about upfront rent, just so on and so forth. Then that's where just given how landlords are wired, you, you know, it, it might be a little bit more painful than it needs to be. I've never thought about how I would value a real estate company or a corporate real estate property, but it's strikingly similar to how I value software companies when I think about it, right? Sure. Now, I would assume because you're valuing on that net rent that the length of those lease terms also has a big bearing on valuation because it, it, does. it lets you have a projection for that recurring revenue. Correct. There's a massive correlation between the term length, i.e. how long of a lease you're willing to sign and the level of upfront incentives that the landlords will give you. So if you're doing a three-year deal, you might get a month or two of free rent and they might sprinkle in five bucks a foot to help you you know, with some cabling costs or whatever. You do a 10 or 15 year deal, then all of a sudden that level of free rent is going to be a lot higher. And the level of TI lines that I mentioned is going to be damn near a hundred bucks a foot, uh, which goes a long way if you're going to build out a bunch of offices and conference rooms and make things interesting and cool. So that's the correlations because you're right. I mean, the longer their rental stream, the more valuable the building. And so therefore they're willing to pay more in order to get that valuation. Since most of my audience for the show are tech companies and tech companies, CEOs, founders, operators, and most of us are running young tech companies, not publicly traded, you know, seed series through a series C, let's say. It's hard for me to envision a lease longer than three years at an early stage tech company. So what happens when an early stage company signs a five or 10 year lease and, you know, two or three years into it, they realize they need twice as much space. If you are going to sign a three, four or five year lease, you've got to really push for as much flexibility as you can, which comes at a price, right? It comes back to, hey, Mr. Landlord, I'll pay your quoted rate. I won't even touch your rental rate. 
But we love termination options. I would rather have a termination option than an expansion option because termination is max flexibility, right? I mean, if they triple being able to terminate and go do something completely different, that's great. I mean, obviously an expansion option would be good, but that expansion option might be for you know, just a 50% increase in your square footage where if you have to triple, then all of a sudden that option becomes less and less valuable. So if if there is a real scenario in which if this product goes as well as we think it is, and we're in some really interesting conversations about new contracts with really big clients, I would be pushing for a sublease all day long because most of the time subleases can probably find one that's 18 to 24 months. It might not be in the perfect location or, you know, maybe the space is a little ugly, but, you know, a little paint and carpet can fix things, etc. Unfortunately, you can't find everything. And so you've really got to prioritize. So if your only option is to do a direct deal and you're trying to get flexibility, then you got to negotiate what we like to call a Swiss cheese lease. It's got to have holes in it everywhere. It's got to have expansion options, downsize options, termination options. Maybe some landlords, depending on the market, aren't willing to do that, but um, you can push and try. And these processes, like I mentioned, they take a little bit of time to put in place and nothing's binding until you sign that lease. And so it's always worth trying. And if something doesn't make sense or you've got a broker that's continuing to scan the market, even after you think you've selected something, like something else might come online that's perfect. You can always pivot until you sign the lease. So that would be my strategy and um, doesn't always work out that way, but we, you know, we all do the best we can. Let, let's say you sign a three-year lease and you don't have the Swiss cheese in the contract. Sure. And 12 months in, you're like, holy crap, we way undersized. Mm-hmm. And now you're starting to ask, how would you go about subleasing that space as you go look for new space? How does that work? What do you need to watch out for? How do you navigate that? So when it comes to subleasing, and, and you can say this about all deals, but time kills deals. Time will crush your recovery. So the way we look at the financial potential for a sublease is like, what do we think we could recover? There is no scenario and nobody should be telling you that, hey, if if you lease this space and you have to sublease it, you're going to be able to get more than what you paid for because market's rising. That, That is never the case. We're always talking about cents on the dollar. And frankly, most real estate directors, if they think they can get 50 cents on the dollar in a return for on a sublease, which includes like downtime, right? Like there's just going to be a period in time in which you move to a new space and it just takes a while to find another tenant. Like if it's three months, six months, nine months, you're just burning cash at that point and that's really painful. And so that factors into the recovery, right? You have to pay the tenant's broker. You're probably having a broker help you backfill it. You're going to have to offer up some free rent, just like a landlord would offer you free rent. And chances are, because you are pretty motivated to move the space, right? Because you're, you've got a melting ice cube. You've only got so much term to offer. You're going to be offering your rent at a discounted rate for a couple of reasons. One I just mentioned, but another one is that none of your rights in your lease will transfer to a subtenant. That's just how leases are structured. So this new subtenant, they don't get a renewal option. If you did have a termination option, they don't get that either. If you did have an expansion option, they don't get that either. So subtenants are, you know, they're the, the redheaded stepchild of the building and the landlord doesn't really care about them because they're not paying them rent. You're, they're paying the tenant rent who then is paying the landlord. So, you know, that's one of the, the, the cons of going into a sublease. But basically, long story short, if you're thinking about a scenario in which, and obviously no one plans this, but you sign a three-year lease 12 months in, you massively undersized. Going forward, keys to maximizing recovery is get on the market as soon as possible. Get a deal 
in the door as soon as possible and be way more motivated to do something quickly. Focus on speed to a deal as opposed to the rental rate of the deal, if that makes sense. It does. Because if you're holding out six months to basically get whatever rental rate you think is fair, I guarantee you when you run the math, that six months of downtime is way more valuable than whatever incremental rental rate you held out for. Is there any value in looking for a real estate provider who maybe has a lot of different properties in your city and that maybe you could trade up you know, with the same provider if you needed to, to move up? Or maybe you're looking for offices in multiple cities and you want someone who owns properties. Do people negotiate that way or is that just too complicated? You know, it's it's never really written into contracts, to be honest, but it's pitched often by these landlords, right? It's like, look, we have a 4 million square foot property. If you guys come to us in year two of your year five lease and you need more space, chances are we've got a solution for you. It's really hard and complicated to sort of pencil that into an agreement, but it, it is certainly a consideration whenever we're you know, comparing lease opportunities for tenants. As a leader, if you've got your team working at a WeWork or in a regular office space, what are some of the signs that you should see that would tell you to consider maybe your office space isn't a good fit for your organization? That's a really, really good question. I think I can answer it from an operational or functionality standpoint. If you've got more occupancy in your space on a daily basis than maybe you thought you might have, and people are fighting over, not necessarily fighting, but conference rooms are always full. Like it will be very apparent when you don't have enough conference rooms. I mean, that's a pretty leading indicator that, look, it's time to find a different solution. And, I, you know, the, the, the opposite is true too. It's like, look, if, if you thought you had great office space and that people would use it all the time and it's not being used, that's a pretty clear sign that maybe, you know, you don't need this office space. And, you know, let's try to sublease it and downsize or, you know, find a way to dispose of it. You know, I'll give a shout out to a portfolio company, Viopta. They do unified communication systems monitoring and they also do office space usage monitoring. What I'm seeing nowadays is not only do conference rooms get really busy and sometimes it's hard to find one, but I'm finding that there are only so many hours a day that you can be in Zoom and really be effective. And so I almost think of Zoom like a conference room, right? If we're overusing it and it's crowded, then we need to find a way to get together in person because it really changes the dynamics. And I think that reporting data is super handy because it's not always apparent, especially if you've got an office that's remote to you, that the conference rooms are always full, you know, or that the bathrooms are always full. Another thing I see often, you know, we, we have an office in Dallas, there's one stall on each floor. And, you know, it's always full. I think those things are things you have to watch. For sure. And, and and for multiple reasons, part of it is that cultural feel, right? You don't want people to be frustrated and feel like they don't have the resources to do their job effectively. That's part of it. But we all start these companies most of the time with the intent of growing them. And so if you're tracking this data along the way, this utilization data, that's sort of a buzzword in our world, as you get bigger and bigger and have to make more permanent or expensive decisions about your real estate, if you have that data, those are really, really sound metrics to then for you to be more mindful and a little bit more thoughtful about how you design space in your new space or what works well in this space that we want to replicate in our future space. Because like I said, the bigger you get, the more sticky these things become and the the higher the CapEx usually that's associated with it. And so, you know, if you have that data to, to make a smarter decision, you're just going to get a better return on that CapEx and a better return on the obligation of your lease. 
You mentioned CapEx. One of the questions from one of the CEOs was, what do they need to know about tax implications? Are there different tax implications to different kinds of leases or what do they need to be aware of there? There really aren't many nuances as it relates to tax implications. I mean, there are some accounting nuances um, depending on sort of where you're at in that part of your business, whether you're a a cash-based accounting or accrual or publicly traded, et cetera. There's different rules for different accounting standards. But, you know, for the most part, people straight line everything. They straight line the CapEx. There's different lengths of time that you can sort of amortize for over or IT over or improvements within your space. For the most part, lease A to lease B, there aren't really any major differences from a tax perspective. You know, obviously, if you're a nonprofit and you go into a building that's owned by a nonprofit, then you get a break on the property taxes. But that's really the only tax opportunity that I can think of. Well, we're running short of time, but I've got a couple other questions I'd love to get to. When you're looking for lease space, what are some immediate red flags to watch out for that when you see them, you're like, Hey, keep on driving. That's not even worth stopping. Oh man. I mean, I think some immediate red flags are frankly, just like how responsive the landlord and their teams are, right? I mean, everybody has different concerns, right? Some people are more concerned with what the HVAC system is like. Maybe they're coming from an office that was just like always super hot or super cold, or maybe they came from a place where parking was an issue. And so everybody has different concerns. And so the first red flag is when you bring up your concerns and you ask about how they might mitigate X and you're just having to chase them for everything. That's a red flag. And it's not necessarily because they're bad people, but it's just obviously they're not super focused and how they treat you and sort of this courting process is probably, you know, it's probably safe to say that that's how they're going to treat you once you're a tenant in the building. And you just don't want to have to be chasing property management when there's a problem with your space. Like making an office space, I don't know how many conversations you have with real estate or facilities people that work within organizations, but it is a thankless job, right? It's either everything's perfect and you don't hear from them, but if something's wrong, they're going to be all over you to get it fixed. And a lot of times these people, they're sort of at the mercy of the property manager or the building engineer or what have you. And if they're not responsive, then it, it makes their job really, really hard. So that that's probably the biggest red flag. The only other thing I would mention is you're going to tour these spaces. You're going to meet these people. You're going to tell pretty soon off the bat, like, is this a cultural fit? And if you have a funny feeling, you know, I would just trust your gut, move on. Last question. What are some things a tenant should not agree to in a lease agreement or or things that you should never agree to unless there's some big concession and you go into it with eyes wide open? Uh, you know, so this is the old like gotcha question. Let's let's start with sort of exit strategies, right? I think a viable exit strategy is subleasing, right? It's not ideal. You'd love a termination, but, you know, it's really hard to get, especially in, you know, the existing markets. It's getting a little softer, but the landlord is going to try to add as many contingencies in that subleasing language so that they could basically not consent to that sublease for whatever reason. It's a little perplexing because you as a tenant still have to pay your rent regardless of the subtenant pays, but you know, some of those gotchas are, you know, we're going to deny consent if the subtenant has like a lesser financial position than the tenant. And honestly, when you're subleasing, you're probably subleasing to a startup venture back company that's making no money. And so if all of a sudden we have to remove those buyers from our buyer pool, that's going to make it really difficult for you guys to sort of get out of the way. You know, another one is sometimes they'll have a, in the default section, they'll basically say, if you vacate the space, you're in default. Okay. Which 
we definitely don't want that language in there because say like, you know, back to this whole outgrowing the space, year two of year five, you outgrow the space. Well, you're going to relocate and find a solution for your company before you probably have a subtenant. So there probably is going to be some downtime, six months-ish, where you have technically vacated the space. And what we don't want is some jerk landlord to basically put you in default and accelerate the entire lease obligation. You know, that's another one. Another one for smaller firms that I would put a lot of teeth in, it's really hard to get rid of, but you can make it really difficult for the landlord. Is It's called a relocation provision. Basically, it's the right for the landlord to move you in his project, um, you know, given like 90 days notice, which, you know, if, if so long as my space is about the same and I'm paying the same amount of rent and like the finishes are good and maybe the views are fine and you're not just sticking me at the end of a hallway, like, sure, I'll make that work. But typically the standard language, it's basically just like, look, we get to move you whenever we want. And if you don't put the teeth in it, like I just mentioned, that would be a, a bad day where you're getting moved into the basement. And the landlord has a contractual right to do so, and there's really not much you can do about it. So it's just little things like that, that, you know, there's always workarounds for them. You usually don't have to trade anything. It's just more about get a decent real estate attorney to review your lease, partner with a broker so that they can at least help give that attorney some context about what is and isn't market standard. And then, you know, the attorney from there can, uh, you know, draft the legal language. And rarely do I ever get into a lease for, you know, a series A, series B company. There's a provision that we can't figure out and the lease and the entire deal blows up. That rarely, rarely happens. So it's just about these things take a long time and people really underestimate the time it takes to get through the process. And so at some point you're inevitably behind schedule and you just want to get something done and just kind of remind yourself that, you know, this is important. Let's take an extra two weeks to make sure that the lease is right so that we don't find ourselves in a sticky situation, you know, 12 months from now. Once a property has been selected as a primary choice, how long do most organizations spend negotiating that lease before they sign? Is it two to three weeks? You know, it, I, we would budget like a month to get an LOI for the business terms in place and then a month to six weeks to get a lease negotiated. And frankly, a lot of the time in that lease negotiation part is really just waiting on attorneys. It, it just brings in more parties to the conversation and the chances of somebody being on vacation or something slipping through the cracks for four or five days, et cetera. Those just go up. But really, Really, the length of time that takes the most is just, at least in these previous markets, you know, supplies certainly coming back for the first time in a long time. It's really just been finding something that takes a long time. At least in Austin, I'm sure the same as in, um, you know, any other relatively popular market. You'd go out and tour three times minimum, three different sort of three, four hour chunks. Like it's the time suck. It's not fun. The inventory has just been so minimal that it just takes some time to tour, resurvey, find some options, tour again, resurvey, find some options. And then most of the time after you've toured and you've kind of been educated on the market and what things look like, then, you know, users are pretty focused and you can get a term sheet negotiated pretty quick. Austin, this has been great. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you. If people would like to learn more or reach out to you, what's the website they should visit for your organization and and how would they find out more about you? Uh, Well, LinkedIn is a good place to start. Austin Trees, it's spelled like nature, what grows in your yard. Again, I'm at JLL here in Austin, Texas. JLL has a massive website. It's a good place to find sort of high level materials on the real estate process and what we do. And that's just JLL.com. Well, thank you very much. I hope to have you on the show again. It was a lot of fun and uh, have a great weekend. Yeah, you too. That was a lot of fun. Thanks again. 
that's it, everyone, and thank you for joining Capital Geek. Subscribe via Apple, Stitcher, or any platform where you usually find fantastic podcasts. Tune in again soon for another great episode of Capital Geek.